Hello, everyone, and welcome very much uh, today's very interesting and important panel discussion, How to Grieve from Cicero and Stoicism to Modern Practices. How can philosophy help us handle loss? My name is Anya Leonard. I am the founder and director of Classical Wisdom, a site dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. And I'm very honored to be hosting this event today. We have an excellent turnout. We've had well over a thousand people register. So I, I really appreciate the fantastic response we've gotten from all around the world. And as I can see people putting in the chat, it really is truly an international project that we have going on here. So for those of you who happen to be new to Classical Wisdom, please check out classicalwisdom.substack for your daily dose of wisdom from the ancient world. And we also have a YouTube channel. We're on Facebook. Um, as I was saying recently, we've had a, an interesting post going viral about Diogenes. So that's always very exciting. Um, please welcome and keep your cameras on if you like, but please keep your mics off so it doesn't get distorted. Uh, today, we have a very impressive panelists who will be approaching the philosophy of death, loss, and resilience and grief from three very different perspectives. While they certainly have a Venn diagram of ideas, there will be very crucial differences. I just want to make sure you guys can all still hear me fine. Yes. Okay, perfect. Uh, so our first speaker is Michael Fontaine, professor of classics at Cornell University, New York, and the author of many books and articles, including his most recent translation of Cicero's Lost Masterpiece, How to Grieve, an Ancient Guide to the Lost Art of Consolation. Mike will be discussing how to grieve specifically from Cicero's works and philosophy. Uh, next up is Massimo Pugalucci, the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. He's also the author of many books, including How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life, and most recently, How to Be Good, What Socrates Can Teach Us About the Art of Living Well. Massimo will be joining the conversation from a neo-Stoic perspective. And finally, we have the writer, cognitive behavioral psychotherapist and trainer, Donald Robertson, who is an expert on the relationship between modern psychotherapy, CBT, and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. He is the president of Plato's Academy Center, one of the founders of modern Stoicism, and also the author of several books, including How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, and his most recent project, Mauritius, Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, a graphic novel. And Donald will bring both a Stoic and modern practices to the table. Now, just checking everybody is entering okay. And that we've, we've got a really large crowd here, which I'm very excited. So for everyone still joining us, welcome. Uh, with regards to proceedings, we will start with a three to five minute recap of the story of Cicero's Consolations. Uh, then we'll turn to the panelists on how to handle loss before delving into a few poignant questions for our speakers. recorded. Finally, opening up to questions from the audience. Um, if you do have your mic, please turn off your mic. Uh, so um, please feel free to submit questions in the chat as we go. Uh, we will address them later on in the conversation. And as I've said a few times, but please be respectful of the speakers, of your fellow viewers, keep your mic off. And this is a classics endeavor. So if you're in the chat, we appreciate classically minded conversations. Um, finally, for anyone joining us who is currently grieving, uh, I would like to extend my condolences. I know we will be discussing different tactics and perspectives that may or may not suit you specifically, but we do hope there is something in this conversation that can help you through this difficult time. 
Now, I'd like to say that Cicero does specifically say that we should address these hard topics before they happen. Um, but we all know that life and death doesn't always happen like that. So if this conversation does become too hard at any point, please don't be hard on yourself. Um, feel free to excuse yourself and watch the recordings when you feel up to it. Okay. Um, it's very important. And with that, I'd like to pass you on now to Michael Fontaine, a professor of classics at Cornell and the recent translator of Cicero's Consolations. Thanks very much, Anya, and to everyone. Um, welcome. I'm going to start by sharing my screen, and please let me know if you can see it. Is, that, is it visible, Anya? Yep, it looks perfect. Terrific. So everybody, welcome. As I said, this is the book that we're going to be talking about. It's just come out last week from Princeton University Press, How to Grieve an Ancient Guide to the Lost Art of Consolation, and it's inspired by Marcus Tullius Cicero. And I just want to begin by echoing what Anya said. This is a really very difficult topic. I have already found this. I am an academic, I'm a translator, and I'm doing the best I can. Uh, and I am um, I have enormous empathy for anybody that has um, gone through this uh, at all, but certainly recently. And so I just want to sort of put that out there before we get talking and make sure we're not I'm not getting too academic with anything I say. This is the uh, purported author. This is Marcus Tullius Cicero. He was consul. That's what the Romans basically called the co-president of ancient Rome. There is his dates, 106 BCE to 43 BCE. He was assassinated uh, just very shortly after he wrote the thing we're going to be looking at. Um, okay, so what's the background? This is what I wrote in the beginning. Marcus Tullius Cicero had a stratospheric year as consul. He had a charmed life. He was on top of the world, but five years later, everything turned on him. He was ostracized, pressured into exile. His property was confiscated or destroyed. His house was burned down. He spent a year and a half wandering aimless and adrift in the middle of nowhere. A decade later, his wife left him. He immediately married again, but very badly. He said that himself, and he only did it for the money. But the rock bottom was yet to come. In the year 45 BCE, his beloved daughter Tullia died from complications of childbirth. She was only 32 years old. And we know from all the letters that Cicero wrote that she was the real light of his life. And at that point, he simply fell to I mean, pieces. I can't, uh, what is this? So get rid of this. Shh. Cicero began having familiar questions, questions familiar to me, maybe to you too. Is there life after death? Are our loved ones in heaven? And how could everything go so bad? And of course, most pressing, is there any way to recover, to rescue ourselves from something as earth shattering as the death of a child? Now, if you look at grief today, a lot of counselors and a lot of psychotherapists today will tell us that it is a process and you go through, not everyone, but many people go through a series of steps from denial to anger, to depression, to bargaining, to acceptance. And a lot of people find this helpful. But Cicero doesn't say anything like that. What does he do? He talks in his letters about wandering around in the woods outside of his house, unable to stop crying. He didn't know what to do. So he holed up in one of these houses and he started reading and rereading all these philosophical treatises on coping with grief. So by Cicero's time, there had been a genre of literature called uh, consolatory literature, basically words of consolation. When Cicero read all these, he decided to adopt the strategy of whatever works. 
he tells us this himself. He went for an eclectic approach. He read all these different kinds of consolations and he can put them all together into one approach. He tells us this in the Tusculan Disputations. His two main sources in what we're going to read today are Platonism and Stoicism. And this is where uh, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. So Platonists like Cicero basically believe in heaven or life after death that's good. Stoics don't. As far as I understand it, they believe that death is the end. Um, and the end of, of misery as well. Neither of these groups believe in hell, not really, although there is a passage, an authentic passage in, what, uh, in How to Grieve, where Cicero seems to suggest that maybe he does. In the consolation, though, Cicero goes through various proofs for the existence of heaven. He doesn't just accept it on religious revelation. He also says things like this. He addresses his daughter. He says, as for you, my precious Tilia, if you can hear me in death, you're happy. By dying once, you put an end to all the unhappiness you faced in life. You're freed from your problems. You're sheltered now, safe and secure. He also says something far more surprising. He says this to her. He says, I will raise you up as a god in the imagination of all mortals. Again, this is one of the authentic quotations. And believe it or not, Cicero says that writing this thing worked. He says that this uh, consolation, he used it to talk himself out of depression. This is the, how I translated this phrase there. He says, I consoled myself through the thing I wrote. Uh, nobody had ever done anything like that, he said. All the previous consolations had been directed to somebody else, but this was directed to himself. So what happened? In or after the fourth century, uh, the book disappeared. Uh, and we had only about 500 words from the original, a couple thousand more of the context. Even in the Middle Ages, early Renaissance, Petrarch, who discovered Cicero's letters, couldn't find the book. He did look for it. But then in the year 1583, against all the odds, as the Renaissance was coming to an end in Italy, the book reappeared in Venice, Italy. Or did it? People weren't sure if this thing was real or if it was a hoax or what was going on. A lot of people thought it was a hoax. And these furious polemics broke out instantly. They went back and forth for years. Nobody could ever really conclusively solve it. The short of it is it's not authentic. I managed to prove this last year. Uh, but it is a truly impressive book written in Cicero's voice, and it's made up of hundreds and hundreds of source quotations from Cicero's real essays. I built a website here to prove it, and you can find it there if you really want to drill down. This is a selection of about 215 sections tracking everything obsessively. Uh, and these are just some of the sources. If you are familiar with classics, you're going to know these are all the greatest hits relevant to the genre. But that's not really what we're here for today. I don't think so. Uh, let's talk instead about what works for grief when you're feeling it, going through it. Let's talk about what Cicero thought works. And let's talk about how and why he thought that. And so with that, I'm going to stop my share, Anya, and maybe turn it back to you um, to cue it up how you look. Thank you, Mike. And that was an excellent uh, introduction to it. I think it's um, very, very interesting to hear Cicero's story. Uh, and so now I'm going to turn us over to Massimo, uh, and I will spotlight him for everyone. Yeah, thank you. That was very interesting, Michael. That's uh, especially that website. I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out <laughs> immediately. Well, not immediately after after this. So Anya charged me to talk about two things briefly, uh, how to handle loss from a stoic or neo-stoic in your modern stoic perspective, and then a little bit about what modern science says. Of course, Don would, would probably talk much, much more uh, about the, the latter. 
So let me start with my take on what Stoicism says about grief. I think that there is a major difference that needs to be appreciated between ancient and modern Stoicism, or at least uh, between ancient Stoicism and the way in which most people, not, under, not everybody, understands modern Stoicism. And that is the ancient Stoics could avail themselves of the concept of providence, and many modern Stoics cannot. Uh, here's a famous passage by Epictetus in the Enchiridion. Zenkaridion 3. He says, if you kiss your child or your, or your wife, say to yourself that it is a human being that you're kissing, and then if one of them should die, you won't be upset. Now, often, uh, the first time that somebody reads something like this, uh, the first thought is, Epictetus must have been a psychopath. What, what do you mean that I shouldn't be upset if my, my wife or my child died. But Epictetus, as far as we can tell, was not, in fact, a psychopath. This passage and others that you find in the discourses are a perfectly obvious consequence of Epictetus's view of how the world works. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God is the same thing as nature and natural law, that everything is the result of cause and effect. And they believed that the cosmos is a living organism endowed with some kind of version of reason or logic or sentience. They refer to it as the logos. It follows that we are literally bits and pieces of these logos. One, uh, to use a modern analogy, you might think that uh, the way the Stoics conceived that our relationship with the cosmos is that we, we are the individual cells of a gigantic body. And so whatever happens to us as individual cells is good for the body. It makes perfect sense once you look at it from the point of view of the body. Epictetus, in fact, uses uh, a number of analogies to explain this concept. At some point, it says, you know, imagine you are a foot that has to step into the mud. And that's kind of disgusting if you look at it from the point of view of the foot. But if you remember that you're connected to the to a body and it is your duty as a foot to cross, you know, to get into the mud because that's the only way for the body to get home, then not only you will make sense of things and only you will accept your fate and your role, you actually will embrace it. What later, much later, Nietzsche referred to as amor fati, you know, love your fate. Well, that's all very nice. Uh, but I don't think it's very reasonable for a modern Stoic to avail himself or herself of that kind of, of perspective. As a modern scientist, I don't believe that the universe is a living organism. I don't think that uh, what happens to me or my relatives or my friends has a reason. It, it has causes, for sure, but it doesn't have any higher reasons, in which case I am left with acceptance and endurance, but certainly not embracing um, uh, in the way in which Epictetus has it. So one thing to keep in mind here is that this is one of those areas, there are not that many, but this is one of those areas where a modern Stoic perspective may be very different. Although the caveat here is that there are some modern Stoics who actually do accept, who think of themselves as pantheists, so they accept Epictetus's uh, view of the cosmos, in which case, of course, they don't have a problem uh, with this whole thing. Now, let me make a couple of comments on the issue of modern science. Uh, and here I'm going to comment not as a psychologist, because I'm not. <laughs> that's that's uh, Don's perspective, but more as a philosopher of science. So I looked at the evolution of what psychologists say about grief from the point of view of somebody who studies science from the outside. Um, arguably, the first modern theory about grieving was, uh, of course, 
by Freud. And he believed that overcoming grief requires an energetic process, as you put it, of acknowledging and expressing painful emotions, such as guilt and anger. He sort of had a subscribe to a hydraulic view of emotions emotions are things that that create pressure and unless you release them they, they, they're gonna you're gonna explode uh fortunately much of what freud um said is actually no longer accepted by modern psychology um on on, on empirical grounds it just doesn't stand up to evidence now my understanding is that modern psychology also has pretty much moved beyond the famous uh kubler ross uh, stages of grief that um Michael actually referred to early on that's also uh, apparently not very not stood very well up to the uh, to the evidence what modern psychologists do think think is that grief is is uh, obviously a natural consequence of forming bonds with other people in a sense it's kind of the the, the price that you have to pay when you love people and modern research has identified actually a number of trajectories of grief. There is there's more than one way to deal with grief. In fact, there are five major ones. The most common, uh, in, interestingly, is uh, a stable low level of distress or resilience. About 46% of the population, according to one study, reacts in that, in that way. The second uh, most common, but way behind, is referred to as chronic grief. That's about 16% of the population. And that actually is problematic. And we might not talk about that. We might talk about that a little later on. And then there is a scatter of others at about the same percentage, 8 to 10, 11%. And these include uh, sort of common grief and what is called common grief or recovery, uh, depression followed by improvement, and finally chronic depression, which is present in about. 8% of the population. What I find interesting in this is that there is a lack of expectation or, 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 or that, that a lack of expectation or psychological preparation is actually one of the major contributors to increase distress during the grieving problems. In other words, if you don't expect something, if you're not prepared for it, and the Stoics wouldn't be surprised by that, right? Seneca tells us that a prepared mind is a mind that can deal with situations, even extreme situations. But if you refuse to prepare, if you do not expect the loss, then you're going to be facing a much more difficult situation. Also interesting, I think, is that contemporary psychologists don't don't any anymore uh, see absence of grief as a pathology. It used to be that if you if somebody were not actually going through a, a period of of grie grieving, then it would be considered as just you know pathological, just as much as sort of chronic grief. But as it turns out. That's not a pathology. It's just part of the human, the normal human range of responses. People respond in different ways to the same situation. However, the DSM-5, that's the, the manual that is used in psychology and psychiatry for uh, describing different conditions, does recognize something called prolonged grief disorder. And uh, the symptoms of this last for at least six months. And it causes significant impairment, social, occupational, and other important areas of functioning. And I suggest that that is exactly the kind of grief that Seneca was addressing in his famous letter to, of consolation to Marcia. He basically describes exactly the symptoms that I just gave you. Marcia had lost an adult son, and two years later, she was still grieving. She was impaired uh, socially. She was not caring about, you know, paying attention to her friends and family, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's where Seneca uh, says, well, you know, this is the time to, to, to see if you can overcome this, this issue.
And speaking of overcoming, in terms of intervention, uh, modern science suggests that there is really no not much evidence for uh, the effective use of antidepressants uh, when it comes for to bereavement. On the other hand, there is pretty good evidence that writing assignments are helpful. So it sounds like Cicero was actually onto something here, that writing about your own grief is actually one way, certainly not the way, but it is one way in which uh, people can be helped in dealing with their grief. One more note uh, before I uh, give back the microphone to Anya, and that is there is also quite a bit of research in neuroscience. Of course, the, you know these days we often see articles about the neuroscience of whatever, the, your brain on whatever. And that's interesting research, but I don't think it's actually very relevant to the issue uh, that the issues that we are concerned with, that is of how to actually deal with, with grief. It turns out neuroscientists have done interesting experiments, usually on, you know, smaller mammals like prairie voles, and they have discovered, not surprisingly, that grief causes the production of stress hormones, and that that production is accompanied by, by triggers and accompanies by long-term changes in brain structure and you know, rewiring of the brain. Well, that doesn't seem to me either very surprising or particularly helpful, as it turns out. Uh, yes, of course, something like grief and stress will will affect the brain and will uh, rewire the brain. That's how we literally process everything that happens to us. So this is not a surprise. It's interesting from a scientific perspective to go and see exactly what's happening in the brain. But I honestly doubt that that knowledge, as opposed to psychological research and psychotherapy, is going to be very helpful to people who are actually grieving. And that's all that I wanted to say. Thank you, Massimo. There is a lot of information in that. Very, very interesting. Um, I'm going to move us now to Donald Robertson um, to add in his points. Hi, thanks, Anya. Uh, and hi, everybody. Uh, thanks to Mike and Massimo for their comments. I think I'll be relatively brief in talking about this, but let's kind of get into... Um, what a psychotherapist might say. I, I'll preface that by saying that I'm not a specialist um, in working with grief. My specialism is anxiety disorders, but all psychotherapists with a general practice would deal with these issues to some extent. So we've already touched on the five stages of grief model, which is one of the first things that people will be familiar with, the Kubler-Ross model. That's denial, bar uh, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. This is quite a well-known model, but it was originally actually developed, as I understand it, for coping with illness and death that patients or individuals themselves were facing, and only later became applied to bereavement or grieving. Um, and it's not actually an evidence-based model, so it doesn't feature prominently, for example, uh, in in modern CBT uh, as a, an approach that we would use. But some counsellors and some therapists still uh, appeal to this model. Um, we mentioned DSM-5 as well on psychiatric diagnosis. Now, I think grief is something that people would naturally associate with depression, or clinical depression uh, as a diagnosis. Um, but it can also, it's important, I think, to bear in mind that it can lead to other psychological problems. For example, uh, it's not unusual for somebody who's been grieving and has been bereaved to start to experience symptoms of anxiety 
disorders such as generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder. So there are many different mental health problems um, that can potentially uh, result from excessive or prolonged or severe grief. And in order to give advice to people, like a mental health professional would normally, uh, we are talking here more about self-help and stuff, but a psychotherapist would normally want to do a full formal assessment with a client in order to figure out which kind of mental health problems might have been triggered. And some people might be predisposed, for example, to agoraphobia and panic attacks, and then bereavement might be something that exacerbates that or triggers the onset of it. So a mental health professional would want to do a full diagnosis and then the treatment would be based on that. Um, so I guess that's a kind of caveat of the discussion that we're having here today. So the, the advice that you'll often hear people saying is, look, if you're really struggling, you should go and see a qualified professional. And that's the reason why they would say that. There's a limit to how much we can, we can do with self-help. Um, I think Massimo touched on Freud. I'll say something about that briefly. I'm a kind of a bit of a nerd about the history of psychotherapy. Um, I spent many years studying Freud. Um, I trained in psychodynamic or psychoanalytic therapy, and I went through uh, the process in group and individual therapy as well. But I'm not a huge fan of that approach. Uh, Freud's approach is over 100 years old now. Uh, it's a pre-scientific, in a sense, basically, approach to psychotherapy. And Freud really had two models uh, of treatment, broadly speaking. The first one was catharsis or venting. Now, generally speaking, um, out of all of the different techniques that we can use in psychotherapy, venting or catharsis or abreaction, as Freud called it, one of the earliest models is the one that's kind of fallen out of favor the most over time. Um, to some extent, it's still part of treating grief uh, or bereavement, um, but venting alone, kind of expressing feelings, um, shedding tears in itself uh, in the long term doesn't always benefit people. And in some cases, it may even be counterproductive. What can be helpful is if people are venting or expressing emotions, and then that's combined uh, with uh, other psychological techniques, which we'll, we'll get a chance to talk more about later. Um, for example, if it's part of a process of learning to more actively accept unpleasant feelings or uh, for other people to be empathizing with you or for you to change your behavior or begin uh, questioning or restructuring some of the, the thoughts that might be causing distress. Freud's other technique, of course, for most of his career was symbolic interpretation and the Oedipus complex and all that. Uh, and unless you happen to be a psychoanalytic therapy, that model has very largely fallen out of favor. So we don't treat bereavement today by telling people um, there's repressed castration anxiety or stuff like that. And that would seem like quite an outdated way of dealing with things. What do we do then in therapy? We usually would assess clients and put together what we call a conceptualization model, which is kind of an explanation of how that individual's uh, experiences and thoughts and actions and feelings are interrelated and how they're influencing one another. And the basic assumption of CBT is that it's our thoughts and beliefs that are shaping our emotions to a greater extent than people normally assume. And that's an idea that they actually inherited from the Stoics. So the core of CBT traditionally is helping people to understand this relationship 
and then helping them to question, to challenge some of their distressing thoughts and to find more helpful or constructive ways of interpreting the, the situation that they're facing. Now, that said, uh, and I guess I'll conclude with this, the more recently, over the past 10, 15 years or so, there's emerged what we call the third wave in cognitive behavioral therapy, which places more, it's sometimes called the mindfulness and acceptance approach, clues in the name, like places more emphasis on becoming aware, mindful of our thoughts rather than uh, disputing them and on accepting our, our feelings rather than, than trying uh, to modify them or change them. Um, and I believe, and I think many therapists believe that this kind of approach fits more comfortably uh, and with the challenges of, of working with uh, severe grief. So one of the things that we do is help clients to find strategies and techniques to accept and tolerate uh, grief or distress um, and allow it to run its course naturally um, while removing what we call experiential avoidance or uh, for example someone might use self-medication um, or avoidance or they might avoid thinking about things as a way of managing their distress so we identify ways in which people might be actively avoiding unpleasant feelings that could be unhelpful and help coach the client through the process of changing those behaviors another thing that we'll do is help clients to observe their thoughts from a more detached perspective this is the mindfulness that I mentioned earlier, we sometimes call that cognitive distancing or, or verbal diffusion. You can find elements of that in the ancient literature and in the, in the Stoics, for example. And then the final aspect of it that I'd mentioned is that the goal today, rather than getting rid of pain or getting rid of unpleasant feelings, is more on helping people to become, uh, improve the quality of life by functioning uh, in a more healthy way again. So the way that we articulate that is in terms of clients living more consistently in accord with their own core values. And so the reason for phrasing it like that is it, it's been found over the years that the goal of traditional therapy and self-help often seems to be getting rid of depression or getting rid of anxiety. But the desire to get rid of these feelings in itself is known to be problematic. So the more people want to avoid or get rid of these feelings, the more they often kind of tie themselves in knots psychologically. And that's why we tend to emphasize emotional acceptance more these days. And again, I'll come back to this later, maybe in the discussion, but we can kind of find some traces of this in the ancient philosophical literature as well. So rather than just getting rid of these feelings, what we want clients to do is to be able to live more fully um, and their emotions will usually uh, develop and be processed and improve as a consequence of that. But someone who's living more optimally and fulfilling their potential more, um, engaging with life more, might nevertheless have feelings of sadness, right? but they're able to contain those and tolerate them and process them. Um, so the goal for them wouldn't be to completely eliminate those feelings necessarily. Um, although, and some people sometimes may fall into the trap of thinking that's what they're trying to achieve. So therapy has attempted to shift focus slightly in recent decades and address that issue. So I hope that didn't go on too long on you, but that's a kind of quick overview of some of the things that you'll find in modern psychotherapy for grief.
Thank you so much, Donald. And uh, yeah, we're, we're getting a really good uh, overview, but I would like to, if I can, um, send it back to, to Mike to go back a little bit more over some of Cicero's ideas, because, um, you know, I'd love to compare and contrast a little bit more of the between the ancient and modern stuff. And I think we've gotten a bit of modern. So uh, maybe I can send it to you, Mike, to kind of go over some more of the ideas that Cicero brought. Thanks. Uh <clears throat> Thanks. I, yeah, I agree. Um, but surprisingly, a lot of what we just heard, this is going to suddenly sound familiar. So Cicero's essay, when I say Cicero now, I'm talking about the reconstruction. It sort of falls into three parts. And uh, let me just outline them sort of briefly. It begins in a deeply, deeply pessimistic way. So if you do read the book and you stop after five or 10 pages, I implore you don't keep reading uh, because it gradually grows in optimism until it ends on this really hopeful, triumphant note. It's amazing. So it's the first third, uh, Cicero convinces himself that death is better than life. He goes on and says this repeatedly, and he's alluding to um, some platonic theories, uh, some platonic um, coping strategies that say things like this. Socrates had said stuff like this. Uh, but then the second third, Cicero goes into grief specifically, and here he gets deeply interested in Stoic coping strategies. So let me just back up and say Cicero was not a Stoic. Uh, he was what he called an academic skeptic, and that's doubly misleading because both of those words change their meaning. Uh, we would call him an agnostic. Cicero didn't know what was real and what wasn't. So he tried to use his best judgment, but he didn't really have strong convictions. But in a time of distress, like many people, he clung to stoicism. He thought that the the, the mechanisms were very valuable. Uh, and so he, he convinces himself, he argues that excessive grief is beneath us. Uh, and he says it doesn't grief doesn't do anyone any good. And there are many, many examples of people that didn't grieve at all. And he says that doesn't mean it's model behavior. Cicero is not saying close out all grief as far as he knows that that's a stoic idea. Uh, and Seneca himself, I think, uh, shied away from that. But Cicero says grief within limits is natural and normal, but we can't just fall on the floor and pound our fists forever and ever and ever. So it does get into this idea of prolonged grief. Uh, and he gives arguments for it. And then the last third, he, uh, and this will be the platonic section, he convinces himself that the soul is immortal. And if souls are immortal, that means there's a heaven, it's up above us. Uh, and he gives arguments for this, and he thinks that Tully is now there. And he takes it one final step, and that's where he says, if heroes have been elevated in heaven, not just to be living forever, but they have this elevated sort of sainted or heroic status. Well, my daughter is the greatest person I've ever known in the world. She must surely be one of these people. And that's how he convinces himself to get there. Um, I can go into detail, but the first thing I just want to note, the last thing, I guess, for now is Cicero is in a terrible state of mind when he wrote this. And it's the very first thing he says. He quotes without attributing it from the Stoic philosopher Chrysippus. So some of, the, uh, some of us on the call might know that name. Chrysippus wrote a book, um, you could call it in English, on negative emotions. And the first thing Chrysippus says is when somebody's in the throes of grief, don't try and convince them that their philosophy is wrong. You use what they know to get them through. And the very first sentence of the treatise here, he reverses it. And he says, I know it was a mistake not to have prepared myself for this, but I don't have any choice now. So he's speaking out of desperation. Um, so let me just leave it there for other comments or thoughts or something, or I can expand whatever you think is best. 
Well, there's a lot to expand on, but I, I'd like to maybe go, say, speak on the concept of afterlife um, because I think that is maybe one of the biggest differences depending on the individual, how they feel about it. So maybe, um, Mike, if you could just say one more word or a sentence or two about it being platonic, and then I'd like to pass it back to Massimo to sort of contrast on that view. Sure. So a lot of what most people today know of as heaven goes not really back to straight Christianity as you find it in the Bible, but actually from Platonism. Um, Plato separated the body and the soul. And uh, when he has Socrates, uh, you know, in his dialogues where Socrates is being executed, Socrates keeps saying, this isn't the real Socrates you're looking at here. I'm going to drink the poison. This isn't me. I'm going to be up there and I'm going to be dining with the heroes forever. So there are there's really two prongs to the argument. The first is that souls are uh, immortal. And he goes through various evidence uh, for arguments for that. He says there's nothing like souls on planet Earth. It seems like magic, right? I mean, your soul moves and works faster than anything in the known universe. We can analyze problems that would take generations to figure out. We can do it in an instant, right? The soul initiates its own motion. I can get up and walk around the room. Uh, but you don't see anything else in the world that can do that. Um, somehow our souls remember stuff. And if it's just a mass of molecules, that seems kind of strange, right? I mean, if it's just blood and, and oxygen and chemicals, how are we remembering? Also, our souls are always active even when we're asleep, right? That tells us the soul doesn't shut down. So he says, this is all evidence that souls have come from God. He believes that, and when he says God, he seems to mean a, a single supreme being, he says there's a couple other ideas, right, that um, when we create art or we aspire to great scientific achievements, it sort of suggests that we care about what's going to happen to our memory after we're dead. Uh, and we also bury our loved ones, right? You see all around the world, people bury their loved ones. Why do we do that if we don't have some inborn, ingrained belief that there's something there? And the last bit, the idea of heaven is really interesting. He doesn't say this here, but he says it in the first book of the Tusculan Disputations, which is a book everyone on this call would probably enjoy reading. In there, Cicero says, you know, our bodies are warm, but when we die, they grow cold. What does that suggest? It suggests that the soul itself is warm. And what do we know about heat? Well, heat rises. That's what heat does. And so heat's going to just keep rising through the atmosphere until it hits equilibrium. And when it does, there will be everyone else that we've ever known. Their souls are there too. And that will be what we call heaven. We'll be reunited. And it's a really amazing argument. Actually, the vice president, John Adams, read this treatise and he commented, he left a note. He said, this is a really remarkable defense in our hope for, for something after this. But all this, I think, is going to sound quite different to stoic ears. So maybe we have some reactions. Yes, I think. Well, uh, no, sorry, go ahead, yeah. Mike. No, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that description of what Cicero believed and sort of the general platonic approach, uh, I think, is, is exactly right. And it does contrast pretty much with this, the Stoic general view. We should always, of course, remember that when we say the Platonist or the Stoic view, there's no such thing as, you know, it's not like there was orthodox Platonism or orthodox Stoicism. People disagreed. For instance, even though my understanding is that most Stoics did not believe in the survival of the soul after death, Seneca does. Uh, you know, Seneca says, yeah, I think it's a little bit over there. It's not 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 very long. You know, it's not it's not a perennial survivalist. And certainly he didn't believe in the transmigration of the souls as Plato did. 
but it does have a little bit, you know, Seneca was a little bit of an eclectic from that perspective. And in fact, as uh, Mike said, so was Cicero. Cicero, one of the nice things about Cicero is precisely that he, his approach is very pragmatic, as we would say today. It is whatever works, right? I'm going to pick and choose, even though, yes, he was uh, officially an academic skeptic. Uh, and, and, and in fact, uh, he took seriously the skeptic notion that you should never assent to any notion 100%. There's always the possibility you're going to be wrong. There's always the possibility that um, that something is going to change your mind in the future, and you should be open to that possibility. That's one of the things that I really like about, about Cicero. Uh, but at the same time, he was also very sympathetic to the Stoic position. A lot of his ethics comes from uh, Stoicism, in fact, and he says so explicitly. Um, but then he's also not above criticizing the Stoics, sometimes harshly. For instance, in, in On Divination, he really makes merciless fun of the stoic belief uh, in divination which he considers what we would today call a pseudoscience and i think there Cicero was absolutely right you know the, the stoics were off the mark so so it's complicated that's i guess that's what, that's what i'm saying now the stoic standard position however is that everything in the world in the cosmos is the result of cause and effect and everything is made of stuff matter including the soul so the soul reacts, responds, and causes things. In fact, the only the only way for the Stoics that uh, things can have or entities can have causal powers is if they're made of stuff. If they're not made of stuff, then they don't have causal powers. And therefore, the soul uh, would be in, inefficacious. It would just be there, inert, and not, not doing anything. Now, if you take that position, which is the same position that a number of modern secularists uh, take, uh, that is that everything is made of matter and energy and that it's all a, re a result of cause and effect, then you cannot avail yourself of the kind of help that Mike was pointing out Cicero does avail himself of. And in a, in a sense, this is another version of the, the issue that I brought up earlier, contrasting ancient Stoicism and the concept of providence with most modern stoicism that does away with with that concept uh, most of the practical stuff that cicero says remains valid uh most of you know the, the therapeutic aspects of writing letters of consolation and you know or, or, or thinking uh preparing yourself not just for your own death, but for the death of your loved ones, those remain. Those those are independent of whether you think that the, the soul survives uh, death or not. But of course, in the case of if you do believe that there is a survival after death, then you have an advantage in a sense, um, because you can avail yourself of thoughts such as, oh, my loved ones out there and doing good things and it's, it's all that uh, there's something good happening and all that sort of stuff. If you are a secularist uh, and a materialist in the sense that we are talking about, you do not have that option. I honestly don't think that's a problem. Uh, I think that at the end of the day, you still have to accept the loss and you still have to process the loss. And I actually, at least my direct experience, not only when it happened to me, but when, when, when loss has happened and grief has happened to people that I know, I didn't see much of a difference in practice between the ones that profess to believe in an afterlife and the ones that didn't. Uh, in fact, surprisingly, a lot of the people, you know, I grew up in Italy as a Catholic 
And so it was always surprising when I went to a funeral that um, lots of people seemed genuinely distressed while I would have thought naively that they should be celebrating and having a party because, you know, the, the loved one is up there having good, a good time and you're going to join in, uh, you know, soon. So it's why, why all the distress? But it turns out that, in fact, we all, of course, go through the distress because it's a human thing. It's the, it's the breaking of a human bond. So I... And the, at the end of the day, I don't think in practice that kind of opinion about the afterlife makes as much of a difference as one might think. In theory, it should. But I don't think in practice that actually makes that much of a difference. That's fascinating. Um, I, I'd like to bring Donald into the conversation uh, a bit more as well. So I'm going to put him up on the, on the list. And um, it was another point you brought up, Mike, about the importance of preparation and overcoming grief. So I'd like to turn us to Donald for a moment um, about how we can do this and how it can be habit. And of course, for Mike and Massimo, um, if you guys feel like you want to add in points, feel free, because I, uh, I think everyone's going to be interested in hearing what all three of you have to say. I, I would just want to kind of back up and touch on a couple of points that have been previously mentioned as quickly as I can, Anya, and then I'll, I'll move on to talk about preparation. Um, so I think one was... I could be wrong about this. So I'm going to, I'm going to say something where I'll, I'll, I'll be tentative about it. My recollection, though, is that in the Tusculan Disputations, Cicero expresses a bit more agnosticism about the fate of the soul after death, although he leans towards belief in the afterlife, if I recall rightly, um, in a way that, that's more reminiscent of Socrates and Plato's apology. And whereas this text, my kind of gut feeling about it, uh, and it, this is just my kind of reaction to reading it, is it, it seemed in some ways more reminiscent of a Christian author or a kind of, um, in some ways actually it kind of reminded me almost of, of Gnosticism. Um, there was a lot, as you mentioned earlier, Mike, of emphasis on the negative aspects of life and how death, uh, as, as Massimo just mentioned, is something to look forward to in this text. And I guess one thing I should say is there, although there are therapeutic concepts in this book, there are also ideas in it that could potentially be interpreted as pathological or, or unhelpful or maladaptive. And one of them might be the amount of emphasis that the author places on the negative aspects of life. He almost at a point sounds like he's gonna become pro-suicide, but then I think he, he briefly touches on that and mentions that he thinks suicide is a bad thing. Um, and then later there's more of a mixture of, of kind of stoic uh, remedies for coping with grief. But this initial kind of platonic argument about how life is a bad thing and, and death might be a good thing I, I think is a problematic aspect of this text approach to dealing with grief. So I'll respond to that. So um, what you first said about the Tusculan disputations being a little bit different, I agree with you. Um, scholars sometimes think that the Tusculan disputations was meant for a public audience, probably of college age students. Cicero was attempting, it looks to me like a moral reform of the uh, in the wake of Julius Caesar's conquest of the state. And so he says things a little different there. And there in the Tusculan disputations, he says, I don't believe in hell. It's a joke that nobody believes that. Here, there's an authentic fragment where he does say that. Um, what's interesting about uh, the text here, and you can see it, is I put in bold the authentic fragments. And those 
emphatic expressions, the conviction and life after death, those are authentic. So the reconstructor is trying to work out the connective tissue to those bones. Um, what's kind of amazing is that the, so this was done presumably around the year 1580 in Venice, right? I mean, the church rules everything in Italy. Uh, the Protestant Reformation's already happened, but it didn't happen in Italy. Uh, and yet there's very, I, I can't see any connections with Christianity that are explicit. In fact, it seems to play that stuff down. The parallels to living um, as a God after all, they come straight out of the early Christian and anti-Christian polemics. So the connections between Christianity and um, and sort of Platonism were there at the very beginning. If, um, if you've ever heard of people like Justin Martyr or Tatian or the philosopher Celsus, everybody agrees that it's similar. They just disagree on whether that makes it legitimate or illegitimate. Um, in terms of maladaptive stuff, I, I'll let you handle that. But I, I think I'd probably agree that some of what he says here is extremely self-destructive. And it could be that he turns us around. So maybe there's a maybe there's evidence here of inconsistency in the real Cicero's views, perhaps. But the or he changed his views evolved over time, possibly, or his private views are different from his public views. The what we see in clinical depression, for example, is a negative filter or negative bias. So somebody who suffers from clinical depression writes a book and they get 100 book reviews and 99 of them are really good. And one of them says your book sucks. Someone with clinical depression will kind of forget about the 99 good reviews and just remember the one that said that the book sucked. So there's a negative bias for uh, information. And you could argue that the arguments that Cicero presents, which are actually not unique, like they're, they're similar, very similar arguments in the Axiochus, which is one of the, the texts that you cite. Um, although here, I think he milks it even more. Like he focuses on the, all the negative aspects of life, which sounds like something someone would do if they were suffering from clinical depression. And even if whether or not that's his intention or what's causing him to think that way, reading that stuff could potentially exacerbate a negative bias and only looking at the bad side of the argument and then not balancing that out by also looking at the, the positive aspects of life as well. Um, another thing I just wanted to mention very fleetingly in pa passing is the Eleusinian mystery religion also promises an afterlife. And I think that's one of the influences on, on some of these early thinkers. Cicero was a huge fan of the, the Eleusinian mysteries. He says it was something that gives us hope uh, in an afterlife. And so that, that may be one of the other things that's kind of um, fueling what I see as a, 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 an attachment to the afterlife that, that kind of maybe prefigures Christianity or reflects the real author's uh, Christianity, possibly. Um, the, to come back to Anya's original question about preparation, I think um stoicism has therapeutic aspects to it but it actually places we often compare stoicism to cbt because cbt was inspired by stoicism but stoicism actually has more in common with what we call emotional resilience training in modern psychology because the stoics placed more emphasis although they do have consolation letters um, and a, a therapeutic dimension, they placed more emphasis on preventative or prophylactic psychological strategies. And so how could we inoculate ourselves against grief in the first place is something that the Stoics think should be more of a priority. 
Um, and the way that they do that is through a number of psychological techniques that they employ. We can see many good examples of this in the, in the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, for instance, um, but primarily by mental rehearsal or premeditation of loss. So they'll, on a regular basis, and Marcus kind of implies that he does this every day, um, imagine the loss of loved ones or even imagine the loss of their own life in order um, to, first of all, there are a number of points where they imply that they're habituating to it, to use the modern psychological jargon. So they're just getting getting used to it emotionally, that the, the feelings um, would be processed over time in a natural way. But also I think for the Stoics, the aim of doing this is to rehearse all of their other philosophical doctrines, to rehearse a, a philosophical attitude towards uh, loss in advance. So I guess that maybe that's a condensed way of summing up what the Stoic strategy would be. Um, they visualize or present the idea of loss to themselves in advance in order to rehearse doing all their, their Stoic strategies. And I think that's a good idea. Um, the, the, I mean, obviously there are some individuals who are very um, vulnerable to emotional distress for whom it would be triggering uh, to visualize the loss of a loved one. But for the majority of people, if they approach it in the right way, it can be something that leads to what we sometimes call stress inoculation. So building up of emotional resilience and um, an ability to kind of practice using the sort of cognitive strategies that might be beneficial to them um, when the, that sort of event actually happens in the real world. Thank you, Donald. And those are really good tactics. Um, and I would like to talk about another one that uh, Cicero employs. Uh, so I'd like to turn to Mike to, to kind of give us a recap of what Cicero does and then turn to, to Massimo again, because I know this is a topic I've spoken to him about separately. So it's kind of uh, bringing together two different worlds here. Um, but that is of role models and of examples. Um, Mike, I'll pass it on to you. Yeah, thanks. The middle third of the essay is entirely taken up by role models. And so this is a feature of all of Roman history. So there's a couple of reasons for it, right? If you're a good Roman, everything you do is how you stack up against your ancestors. So this is inherited from uh, ancient Rome culturally in a way that I think is probably not for many of us today, although maybe for some of us. Uh, but the other thing is um, Cicero in this treatise uh, Cicero, cites examples of extreme grief suppression. And you say, why? Already in my experience with um, showing the book to people, uh, people are getting this wrong already. Cicero is emphatic. He says, you should not repress grief. That's not a good thing to do. Uh, he says, what we don't want is excessive grief. But he cites the role models because he says, these people show you what is humanly possible. Uh, not what's a good idea, but what's humanly possible. If you see somebody that can do 150 pull-ups in a row, you think, wow, all right, well, maybe I could do one, right? In other words, there are, he wants to distinguish between what's impossible and what's possible, even though it's very, very, very difficult. And so in philosophy, I bet Massimo can tell us, there's an old um, saying that you don't want to confuse the is with the ought, right? You don't want to confuse something that exists with something you ought to be doing. But Cicero says, here are these statesmen who or and, and he cites a number of women uh, whose, whose uh, sons were killed in war in Sparta and they came back and the mothers say, well, this is great. I'm very proud and I'm happy. This is what I bred my son for. 
for. And they say these amazing things. And Cicero is not saying we should act like that. But if that can be done, it means that the ability to control grief is to some extent under our voluntary control. Uh, it, it's not like an epileptic seizure where you cannot stop it, right? It's not like a doctor whacking you on the knee and your leg kicks forward. That's impossible to stop. But this, he says, could be really, really hard, but we know it can be done. And that's why he cites the examples. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Mike's reference to the, the relationship between art and can. In fact, Kant actually said explicitly, art implies can. If you cannot do something, then it doesn't make any sense to say you ought to do it. Like, what well, ought to do what? I, it's, it's not within the realm of possibilities or my possibilities, at least, so I cannot do it. And therefore, there's no, there's no moral obligation of doing it. Therefore, I certainly agree that one of the reasons, major reason for uh, picking a role model, especially an actual role model, because some of the, the Stoics sometimes picked idealized role models. They picked, you know, Odysseus or Heracles. That, you know, what Heracles, and he's the same, my God, they're my God. So whatever Heracles does, it's not, not exactly a good model necessarily for for human beings, but what real human beings do when you when you pick a, a real human being as a role model, and here's for instance Seneca, who is very explicit about this in in his eleventh letter to his friend Lucilius, he says, "Choose Cato, meaning Cato the younger, then, or if you think Cato too stern, choose Lelius, a man of milder temperament. Choose anyone whom you admire for his actions, his words." even for his face, since the face reveals the mind within. Keep that person in view at all times as your guardian or your example. I repeat, we need a person who can set the standard for our conduct. You will never straighten what is crooked unless you have a ruler. And I like this image of the role model is the ruler, is it tells you where you want to be and, and you're comparing yourself with the, role, with the role model and you're trying to get as close as possible. Uh, to that ruler. So there is also in evidence from modern science, actually, that using role models does work, in, certainly in terms of ethical guidance. There is empirical evidence showing that when people are reminded or they remind themselves of uh, things like, you know, I wonder what my grandmother would say about this, or I wonder about so-and-so would, would do, uh, then they're actually more prone to do the right thing, to act in a, in a way that is sort of more ethical in the broad sense of the, of, the, of the word. So I think the role models are important and they've been important for literally millennia at this point. You know, the, the, the Stoics and um, some of the other uh, Greco-Romans had a good intuition about the, the importance of role models and modern science confirms it. I just want to respond quickly to that, if I can, Anya, which I think it raises an interesting question. So we're right, like role models are a fantastic idea, right? Like, and there's good psychological evidence to show for the, uh, their benefits. We've got some really cool research on that. So like many similar observations, I think it raises an interesting question, which is why, why don't people do that already? And what we often find with people who have been bereaved is that one of the things that prevents them modeling coping, as we put it, from other people who have shared similar experiences is, uh, there are several reasons for this, but one of them is that some individuals will tend to say, nobody can understand the grief that I'm experiencing because it's unique to me. And you'll find that that's a way of thinking or interpreting the situation that becomes quite common, but it acts as a barrier to learning coping strategies from what we would describe as a coping model. There's no point looking at what 
Cato did or what anyone else that I know has done because nobody else has ever experienced a loss like I have. So we kind of paint ourselves into a psychological corner by doing that. And one of the ways that people do that sometimes is by idealizing the lost one. And I think that that leads us back to something we mentioned earlier, which is that Cicero appears to do that in this text. So you could argue that one of the other problematic patterns of thinking that Cicero exhibits in this text is his kind of shameless, you might almost say, desire to, to deify um, his daughter and um, the, the, which potentially comes across as a sort of irrational idealization of her, which in some ways is natural in grief. But what we, we'd expect to find is that that way of thinking has some disadvantages and it might be one of the things that actually prevents somebody from learning from coping models. Mike, I feel like you want to add on to something. Well, I'm sort of nodding and smiling at everything I'm hearing, especially Donald say here. Yes. You know, I wrote in the introduction to the book that when a lot of people, when they lose a loved one, they, they, you know, what do we say? They build a shrine to their loved one. Cicero actually wanted to build an actual bona fide shrine, like a church. And he wanted to have priests uh, build a building, priests there, and her venerated uh, forever. And, uh, you say, wow, that's uh, extreme. Those are part of the authentic fragments. As, as some of us are, already know, this is in Cicero's letters. We know he did this. He drew up the plans. He talked about buying a piece of property. Uh, and then the, it just kind of fades out. We never hear much more about it. But um, but I was struck what you were saying, Donald, about the idealization, right? I mean, yeah, this idea that someone that we love so dearly was somehow perfect. What is interesting here is that... Um, Cicero really did think his daughter was about as perfect a person uh, as you could find. And he says this over and over in the letters. He praises his daughter. I don't think he, he didn't seem to get along with his wife all that well. Uh, and he definitely did not get along with the second wife. And he didn't get along with some of his friends. But his daughter was sort of his anchor in the world. He says this over and over. You know, Cicero basically today, you would say, got sent to prison. He was sent to exile. But his daughter was there the whole time. She was sort of the strength. And she had a, a bad life. I mean, she was married off at a young age to somebody who died. And she was divorced right away. Then divorced the second time when she was pregnant. I mean, she had an awful, awful run of things. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, parallels you could draw with other religious traditions that venerate the dead. Um, again, so it, 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 Cicero here gives us a glimpse of some of that. That's from the Authentic Fragments. But I wanted to add something there that is, I think that the, the issue of the deification of, of Tullia is interesting because it shows you once again that Sister is an act, it's a real human being. He's not pretending anything, right? And so what he's doing is his immediate response to given the overwhelming grief is like, I, I got to do something exceptional. I have to build a shrine to my daughter. But then of course he, it, it kind of you know let's go this project basically says all right that was that was an idea in the spur of the moment i was in the middle of grief now let's get back to a sort of more normal life and let me grieve in a more normal fashion and it's it's refreshing because you see a philosopher who is a human being and 
uh, constantly sort of balances these things out, the emotional response on the one hand, and then, then of course, he kind of comes back and he says, well, I mean, maybe, maybe a shrine is a little too much, or maybe I shouldn't go that way, and he just drops it, right? So it's, it's uh, and we have access, um, as Mike was saying, to a lot of what Cicero says and thinks about this, not just through his books, but through the letters that he writes, especially to his lifelong friend Atticus. And so we kind of have a uh, inside view almost of Cicero's mind where he's much more unguarded and open to his friend as uh, as what you might expect in a book and it's fascinating to to compare since we have a lot of these letters it's fascinating to compare what he writes in a particular moment and then what he says to Atticus about the same topic um, I, I think these are all excellent points, and I love hearing you guys uh, go back and forth with, between each other as well. Um, and so I'd like to maybe throw out a few questions openly to the three of you, uh, and then I'll start taking questions from the audience because we've already been getting so many really interesting ones. Uh, I want to make sure we have a bit of time to get into them. Uh, but this is kind of a practical one because we're talking a lot about it philosophically for ourselves. How can we help those who are in the throes of grief? Um, how can self-consolation be encouraged? Does it have to come from within? I'll respond to that quickly, if that's okay. But and I'll backtrack briefly before, though, if you don't mind, Anya, and just say, as an aside, in relation to idealization, does anybody want to be idealized by their dad? Like, and have a shrine built to them after they're dead and be deified. The weird thing about idealization is that people who are on the receiving end of it, which is more common than you would think, often find it quite unpleasant. Um, so how do we console people that are going through grief? Um, there's a lot of things that we could say about that, but the shortened version of it is, number one, be a good listener. Like, so actively listen. Um, like allow people to speak, um, you know, ask for clarification where appropriate and just learn to be a, an empathic and a compassionate listener because like often people just need to be heard. Um, also be patient with people that are experiencing grief because sometimes they might have mood swings or they might behave erratically. And so a certain amount of a certain amount of, of patience or, or tolerance is, again, to flip it around in the way that I just did, you know, what would you want if you were bereaved and you were grieving? Wouldn't you want your friends to be good listeners and for them to be tolerant and understanding and patient with you? Um, and then I guess the other part of it is, you know, we have to, the advice that Epictetus gives is that we should grow outwardly, but not grow inwardly when we're, we're listening to somebody you know, so, you know, we we shouldn't challenge what people are saying and we shouldn't try to problem solve for them. You know, we shouldn't give them too much advice where it's not wanted. So sometimes, you know, occasionally people do need advice or we do want advice, but we most people who are going through that process don't want to be lectured or, or be given too much advice or for the problems to be solved for them by other people. So a certain kind of detachment is required for want of a better word, we call it cognitive distancing, would be the more appropriate term. And so therapists, all therapists have to have this knack of empathizing with people without agreeing with them. You have to be able to understand someone's suffering without beginning to actually share their suffering and, and you know, uh, become kind of uh, subject to it yourself. So there's a balance to be struck 
between kind of joining the person and looking at the world from their perspective, but not entirely. So also being able to see it from other perspectives at the same time, not getting sucked in too much, but not be, being too cold or too detached. Yeah, I was I was going to actually mention the same bit by Epictetus that Don just uh, made a reference to because it's a great example of how Epictetus himself is actually empathic and it says to his friend or to his student, look, you don't you don't go around beating people on the head and say bad stoic, you should be thinking this or behaving that or something like that. That's for you to tell to yourself how you should behave as a stoic. But when when you deal with other people, you know, you need to pay attention to them first. It's it's about them, not not about uh, about you. So I, I actually find that particular passage, um, which I think, in fact, it's in, in the Enchiridion. If it want, people want to check it out, it's Enchiridion 16. It's, it's one of those cases where Epictetus draws a pretty good, pretty sharp different distinction between the Stoic practitioner who is concerned about self-improvement on the one hand and the attitude that you should have toward other people where it is about them and not you. I'll just have one little, Anya, may I? I, I, I quoted in the, in the introduction here, a passage, just a couple sentences from Cicero's Tusculan Disputations. And the Stoics were big in connecting language. They thought that words that sounded the same had a connection. And the Greek word for grief is lupe. And the Greek word for falling apart is lusis. And so Chrysippus, the big psychotherapist, uh, made that connection. And Cicero writes, people whose grief is so great that they're falling to pieces and can't hold together, they should be supported by all kinds of assistance. That's why the Stoics think grief is called lupe, because the person is actually falling apart. And so th this is the same theme I hear both of you saying, that you don't worry about whatever the specifics are now. You, you just give all the help and love and support you can uh, in the moment. And can I just ask, um, because this is one of the specific questions from Joseph, about what does Cicero or the Stoics say about consoling a friend who's facing death? Would you say that this sort of advice would be this similar, or is it kind of tailored differently for the circumstance? If that's a question to me, I'd say Cicero doesn't get into that at all in this book. And I, I'm struggling with the question to think where he does get into that. Those are questions I think Seneca answers uh, far more. And I associate those questions with Seneca and the preparation for death. Um, we have other consolations to other people. We have some from Plutarch, who's a Platonist, and we have some from Seneca. Uh, and we have one to Cicero himself at the time from a friend, but it, it's not going to console anybody. That one, he just, his friend says, you need to get tough and be a man, Cicero, and stop crying. And it, it's utterly heartbreaking. I mean, it's awful stuff. Um, so we don't see how Cicero himself would have had an other directed one. Yeah, I think the Seneca is definitely where you want to go because he has this notion that philosophy itself is essentially a long preparation for your own death, to face your own death. He calls it the, the final test of your character. Uh, and arguably the best example of self-consolation in preparation of your own death is Boish's Consolation of Philosophy. That book is, you know, it was written when he was facing a death penalty and uh, and he imagines himself talking to philosophy in order to, you know, feel better and re-examine his life and all that sort of stuff. So that's a, it's a, it's a classic of, of Western literature. And it's a, really, if we're talking about one's own death, that's the, that's the place to go, I think. Thank you. And um, it, it's great that you guys have actually brought up Seneca's consolation letters, because that's one of the other questions. Uh, but I'd like to ask kind of a different degree, because this is a question about 
Could you say more about grief due to loss of something other than a person, such as work, social position, a house in a natural disaster, a maimed body? Maybe Donald or Mike, do you have? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm curious, Donald, would you consider that grief or is it something a little bit different? Gosh, I don't know whether we'd call it, we'd call it I, I don't know if I'd make a, um, a sharp distinction. Some people might choose to call that grief. Um, it's obviously different um, in many ways, although there's some commonality perhaps. Um, the Again, it gets, it really boils down to, so say someone grieving excessively over like a relationship breakup or losing a job or something like that, or going bankrupt maybe. Um, for the Stoics, that's all about excessive attachment to external goods, right? And these are things that we deal with very commonly in cognitive therapy. So really there'd be a combination of things that we would do in response to that. And it would vary from one individual to another. But uh, a big part of it would be helping people to imagine alternative ways of responding to the same situation. So again, thinking about role models and what's how someone else might cope better uh, when they face the, the same situation. Another technique might be time projection. So getting people to imagine themselves uh, like five, ten years in the future, looking back on something like a relationship breakup. And, you know, how would they view it in the distant future? Would they feel the same way about it? Or, you know, would they not see it as being as catastrophic uh, from that perspective? So there are really, okay, it's hard to summarize because really a multitude of techniques, but the, the bottom line for the Stoics would be that's all about placing too much value in general on external things and not enough value or importance on our, our way of coping. I'll add on to that. I've got a couple of works that people may be interested in. One is the doctor, uh, the physician and philosopher Galen. He wrote in Greek. Uh, you may have heard of just about 15 years ago, a grad student discovered in a monastery, a lost treatise by Galen. The title in Greek is Perialupios, which means like on getting rid of grief. I don't know how it's been translated into English, but I'm sure you could find it with a quick Google search. And what Galen was... Um, he owned a massive library. He was the best physician in the Roman Empire, a library with all kinds of uh, prescriptions and books and scientific instruments to help people. And the whole thing burned down. And so he wrote a consolation about how to get over that. Uh, I just reread it recently to see if there's any connections with this, and there's not. But it is interesting um, for a lot of people. The other text I thought I'd, I, I didn't mean to plug, but since it came up, Ovid has a text called Getting Over Breakups. Dave Remedio Amoris. I just finished a translation. It'll be out in, I don't know, a year and a half or two. So maybe we'll do a sequel then. But uh, Ovid says that uh, after a nasty breakup, you should just start back at square one. He says, you know, no toxic view of the opposite sex or the same sex for that matter. Right? There's no demonizing other people. Just try again. And he has specific strategies. There are about 40 of them on how to get over some of that. And can I ask, does this, um, to your thoughts, Donald, with regards to animals? Because, you know, in, in preparation for this, Mike and I were talking, you know, saying, you know, kids are out, pets are the new kids and plants are the new pets. So um, the, the reality is, is that for a lot of people, their pets are dear companions. They're very, very interconnected to their lives. Um, and the loss of a pet is real for them. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, that's definitely something that you encounter today 
what would the like, the stoic perspective on that's probably not going to be very similar to the way we think about pets today um but uh gosh i don't know i mean for some individuals losing a pet might be similar to bereavement for other people it might be more like losing a job or or something like that it might be kind of quite a distressing event but not uh, not quite the same way as an actual uh, loss of a, um, a human bereavement, for want of a way, better way of putting it. Um, but for sure, like people come to therapy because they've lost a pet and it's affecting them in a similar way, definitely. And the same, some of the same techniques. Again, as Mike just mentioned, the, you know, all that Ovid text is fantastic, but it has like loads of techniques in it. Um, so what we are having to do is just go, oh, what, maybe this one or that one is examples. Um, but like in CBT or in Stoicism or in Ovid or some of these other ancient Stoicism, there are dozens of different psychological techniques that are potentially, and if we're, so if we're broadening the scope to think not only about console, um, bereavement, um, but also loss of a pet or loss of property, then there's an even wider range of strategies that we could potentially employ. So it's hard to summarize them, right? but we can pick out examples. I'd say the key things from a modern psychological point of view would be um, accepting. Actually, let me say something like, that we, we, we haven't said explicitly, right? but I think is very helpful. I'll try to say something uh, practical and simple here. Part of the difficulty that most people encounter, in my view, put very simply, is a failure to distinguish between voluntary and involuntary aspects of their emotional experience, right? So we talked about grief and acceptance and our ability to control grief. It might be easier to say that there are aspects of grief that are relatively involuntary, and there are aspects of grief that are more under voluntary control. And kind of blurring that and mashing it together is one of the things that confuses us and impairs coping. Being clearer about which parts are automatic or involuntary means that we can be clearer about which parts we need to accept and come to terms with um, and allow ourselves to experience so that we can process them naturally. And being clearer about which parts are optional or voluntary, such as the amount of time that we spend ruminating or focusing on the past, right? That may be something that's more, actually more under voluntary control um, and therefore something that we could do differently or our role models might be handling differently. But to, to figure out how to cope, we, we at least need to make a distinction between the involuntary and the voluntary aspects of our emotional experience, I think. This sort of leads me to this specific question from um, Aaron, that there's a quote from Epictetus, which many of you, have, I think, already referenced, saying where he says, don't get carried away with other people's losses. And uh, it sounds pretty cold on first read, but could either of you guys share um, how not to get too involved while at the same time worrying? And I'll pass you on to Massimo so you can well, get in. Yeah, that was that was a quote from Enchiridion 16 that both Don and I referred to. And, you know, the funny thing about Epictetus is that it, at first sight, if you don't know much about the underlying Stoic philosophy, and particularly, as I was mentioning at the beginning of this conversation, uh, the Stoic ideas about providence and, and the cosmic connection that we have, it really does sound like a psychopathic son of a bitch. I mean, he's like, he's, he's like you read some of his passages, like, whoa, what is, what is this guy thinking? 
Um, but if you, but but you know, every time one one has that kind of reaction to any author, one should pause and say, well, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe maybe there is something that I should dig a little bit more uh, more deeply into it. So what Epictetus is doing there is is telling you the Stoic position, which follows logically from from the from Stoic metaphysics, and you know, quite frankly, I would, I envy people like Epictetus. If I had access, if I really believed that the cosmos was this living organism of which I wanted the cells and, and that all makes a lot of sense in about my own life and, and my own losses, that would be great. That, that wouldn't be a psychopathic response. That would just be great. And it's very similar, as we were saying earlier, to other traditions belief in some kind of providence i mean the christian one where i in which i grew up as i said before like yeah it's great if i could if i can believe that then that's certainly going to help uh at uh, dealing with with the major setbacks in life um so you need to take epictetus in that in that fashion in that perspective imagine that you were talking to a, a solid christian who tells you that you shouldn't be be uh, upset about your father dying because he's in heaven and he's looking down on you and you'll join him uh, you know soon you, you wouldn't think of the of the catholic in question being a psychopath you'd say oh yeah that's right i i get what he's what this is coming from i can i just very quickly say that some of the passages where people might think that epictetus sounds like a psychopath are the passages where i think he sounds more like a psychotherapist which might seem like an odd thing to say that people, I think, might sometimes feel that psychotherapists have an odd perspective on emotion. And that's because the, the, one of the main challenges that all counsellors and psychotherapists have to deal with in their practice and in their clinical supervision is, as I touched on earlier, this ability to empathise with people without getting sucked into their suffering. And I think Epictetus is somebody who strikes me in the ancient world as being very aware of that. Uh, that paradox, that challenge, to to the extent that you know, I I think that's partly why he's relatable to to many psychotherapists. He's aware of a, a problem that's particularly familiar to them. Well, it's very interesting. <laughs> that little soundbite is just going to be fantastic about <laughs> Epictetus being a psychotherapist. Um, now, I'd like to, you guys have all been so generous with your time. I'd like to finish up with one last question coming back to Cicero and his consolations. And so this last one is for Mike uh, with regards to the translation and delving into Cicero's work. This one's from Brad. What was the most surprising, contradictory, idiosyncratic, shocking thing that you found as you deeply into Cicero's writings on grief. So thanks for the question, boy, that's tough. Uh, I will say I was less surprised by almost any by, by almost any of it. Uh, it has this immediacy when you read the thing. It's very deeply affecting. The rhetoric is gorgeous. The person who wrote this was trying to imitate Cicero. Cicero is the most persuasive speaker of all time. But, uh, and the idea that he's talking himself out of depression is this sort of Strange paradox, but the very end is the most surprising thing, and it's the logic of how he goes from belief that Tulia is in heaven to the belief that Tulia is a god. Uh, now, that's the most shocking, maybe blasphemous thing for a lot of people to even think about. 
Uh, but the logic there is quite amazing. He says that we have already done this, and a lot of cultures have done this with heroes already. You know, for the Romans, we think Romulus is a god up in the sky. We think Hercules was the son of God, an immortal woman who rose up into heaven. And we know the Athenians have done this with some of their heroes. And the Egyptians are off there, and they're even sort of divinizing like dogs and turnips and stuff. And if they can do that, then he says, my daughter was a hero at least as great as Romulus. And uh, so if we've ever done this for people who are less worthy, we should absolutely do it for people who are fully worthy. And that is the sort of the triumphalist note that he ends on. And it's really, every time I read it, it's crazy. I translated it myself, but every time I read it, I start feeling like the emotions engage. It's, it's quite affecting. So I hope you'll read at least the end of it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mike. And I, my, I say that I thoroughly enjoyed reading the constellations and it's been very fascinating doing this panel discussion to discover how different sometimes Cicero's ideas can be to modern practices and also how similar. Um, and I think reading the book itself, um, it was a very readable translation. I really enjoyed it. And I was very touched several times uh, reading Cicero's descriptions of, uh, of how he felt the grief and loss. So um, I, I thoroughly recommend uh, for everyone to get the book and enjoy reading it themselves. Um, and uh, I'd like to just take a moment very quickly to say thank you again for everybody joining us. Uh, and if you want to learn more about classical wisdom or ancient history and philosophy, you can go to classical wisdom at Substack. We also have podcast coming out pretty soon about Seneca. Um, I think many of you guys know David Feidler. So we have a podcast with him that will be released in half an hour. Uh, and also one last bit of housekeeping. Classical Wisdom has another event in November 17th um, with a good friend of Donald Robertson's, in fact, about uh, ancient Greek learning the language for children, for adults. Um, I will put information about that in the links. Um, and so with that, I want to say thank you. And I will pass you off to our panelists, um, Donald, Massimo, and Mike, if you guys each want to say goodbye and thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this very much. Bye, Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Bye bye.